Psalm 39, Lord's Day 19. Lord's Day 19 deals with the the session of Christ, which we dealt largely with uh, last week. It also deals with the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. So that'll be the main uh, focus for us tonight as we turn to God's word. Psalm 39, the futility of life and the everlasting God, Psalm 19. Hear from God's word. For the director of music, for Jed Uthan, a psalm of David. I said, I will, wa- I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. And if we look to our lesson, Lord's Day 19, let's read the answers together of these three questions. Beginning at question 50, Lord's Day 19. Why the next words, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, and that the Father rules all things through him. How does this glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out his gifts from heaven Upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us safe from all enemies. 
How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. Very famous Atheist, traveling atheist and speaker, Richard Dawkins, author. Many of you probably know him, heard me mention him before. Uh, He has traveled the world trying to convince people not to believe in God and challenging believers of all stripes to abandon their uh, long and dearly held beliefs. He has contended that uh, religion has been a catalyst for bad behavior, it's caused bad behavior, not, uh, it has not restrained it. Therefore, it was quite surprising and telling recently when he said that the demise of religion in our world may not, in fact, be a good thing. Because, as he put it, quote, people may feel free to do bad things because they feel that God is no longer watching them. People may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them. In other words, the sense that people have that they ought not to spend their time doing evil things uh, must in some way be a deterrent to bad behavior because they have a sense that a God is watching them and that there will be an accounting of all of these things. One theologian commenting on this rather striking remark uh, by this world-renowned atheist said, uh, Biblically, we know that people feel that they are being watched because they are being watched. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil And the good. Romans 2.16, looking to that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. As a just judge, God tells us that he sees all. Not only does he see all external actions, but he knows the depths of our heart. And one day there will be an accounting of all the things that have taken place. And since this is the case, we are to live our lives in light of that day. Not only because it is something that we know will happen, but because it is a judgment given by the one to whom we owe all our life and breath. The God who will judge is the God who deserves our worship and our service because of who he is. Not only that... But this is the God in whom we find our purpose, our reason for living. 
So the most significant event of all of our lives is conducted by the most significant being whom we will ever know, God himself. This causes us to to look at this situation and say, the day of judgment is something that we ought to always have in uh, the forefront of our minds. Psalm 39 is a lesson on perspective, on finding the kind of perspective on life that allows us to live lives that honor God in the time that is given to us, living in light of the end. Pastor Tim Keller says that how you view the end of the world affects how you live today. Just look at how someone lives their life. Look at how seriously someone takes the notion of service to God and you will find out something about how they really view the end of the world. I found one example of this in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, where uh, there is a lesson in wisdom given through uh, the the metaphor, but really also the concrete example of uh, sexual wandering, right? And not being enticed towards sexual sin. So we read Proverbs chapter 5, keep your way far from her, that is an adulterous woman. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And then here, verse 11, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Refrain from this pattern of sin because at the end of your life, you will groan and you will look back and you will see how much you have wasted. Perspective is to be able to see that at the end of your life, You want to be able to look back, even in the midst of all of your imperfections, if we think about it biblically, that none of us are perfect, but God calls us to live with wisdom and perspective, to live in light of the end, and because of that, that deters us from sin. There's also comfort as we think about the last judgment, and that is really where this last question and answer of our lesson tonight brings us. It brings us to the comfort of thinking about our king returning and the comfort we have from knowing that the judgment that will happen at that day has already passed in our justification. We can be assured that the verdict that was rendered at justification when we are given faith in Christ, that will be the verdict at the last day. It rings forward into time and it will resonate then when we meet our Savior and our Maker. So let's think about Psalm 39 together for the moments that we have left tonight. The first thing that we see in verses 1 through 3 is a despair at the imbalances of life. Life is not fair, and as the psalmist looks out, what does he see? Well, he's surrounded by the wicked, 
The wicked are surrounding him, and what we're supposed to to see going on here is that he's looking around and he's seeing that the wicked are prospering. These are the kinds of things that we see in scripture in places like Psalm 73. I was filled with despair when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These are the things that we see in places like Ecclesiastes, where Kohelet, the preacher there, is it, everything is vanity. Why? The wicked increase. The righteous suffer. Job is another example of the righteous suffering. Right? Life is not fair. So, rather than crying out, what does the psalmist do? He keeps silent. He does not speak hastily. He says, I'm going to close my mouth. I'm not going to speak up for fear of what? Well, evidently he fears that if he were to just cry out immediately, what would he do? He would be sinning because there would be nothing for him to do except accuse God. Proverbs chapter 29, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. A wise man quietly holds it back. So David here, the psalmist, shows wisdom in that as he sees this great injustice in the world, he does not just cry out, but he thinks about it. He chews on it. We should all desire to have that kind of a heart of wisdom. He doesn't cry out immediately and accuse God. Rather, uh, he meditates on this present reality, the flourishing of the wicked. But he does reach a point where he must cry out. We all have this deep sense of justice. We, we, we know what fairness is, and we know when unfairness happens, right? Uh, at this stage in my life, it's all about justice when I come home uh, at night. The, the four-year-old and the two-year-old, there's a lot of decisions that need to be meted out and a lot of equity that needs to be accomplished. It's all about justice, right? Because from the very first uh, moments of cognizance, there is this sense that I need to make sure that I get whatever that person's getting and that everybody has the same because that's fair. The psalmist cries out with a bit of that sense of justice. He calls out, he cries out because he can no longer stay silent in seeing the flourishing of the wicked. But because he has chewed on it a little bit, we we see in verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to open my mouth, because he has done that in verses 4 through 6, he's really asking the right kinds of questions, or he's gaining a little bit of perspective slowly, little by little, perspective is coming to him. And what we might say about verses 4 through 6 is the importance of knowing the purpose of life. You have to know why you are here. You have to know that foundationally there is an answer and a purpose for every day that you live. I tell this story, I've told it before, I know. The war scene, revolutionary war scene, a village is going crazy, everyone's in chaos. Two people perfectly calm pass one another, they kind of give each other a knowing glance. And as they pass each other, the one says to the other, what is the chief end of man? The other says, to glorify God and to enjoy him 
forever. It gives you peace in the midst of the storm if you know the purpose of your life. Verse 4, we, we might translate it, it showing that it's really a bit, a bit more of a call that God would explain the meaning of life. Verse 4, Lord, explain to me my life's end and the meaning of the measure of my days. What does it all mean? Four great questions everyone has to know, everyone has to answer. Origin, where did you come from? Meaning, what's it all about? Uh, morality, how do we determine right and wrong? And destiny, where are you going when you die? Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You need to have a purpose of life. The glory of God and the enjoyment of him. What happens without purpose? Well, a lot of what we see in the world today, isn't it? People who don't know why they are here. One of the most renowned atheists of all time who would go out and debate and debate Christians, debate theists, wrote books trying to convince people to abandon their hope in God in a personal letter to one of his friends, listen to the kinds of things you say when you believe that life has no purpose. And in some ways, I apologize that this is a, a crass letter to quote, but just to make the point, Bertrand Russell, he says this, I have been merely oppressed by the weariness and tedium and vanity of things lately. Nothing stirs me. Nothing seems worth doing or worth having done. The only thing that I strongly feel worthwhile would be to murder as many people as possible so as to diminish the amount of consciousness in the world. These things have to be lived through. There is nothing to do about them. That's what happens when you don't have a purpose to your life. And so we see that there is a a bit, the flickers here of the psalmist explain to me the meaning of the measure of my days. And then verse 5, perspectives uh, begins to be grasped or gained in seeing the transitory nature of life, the futility of life, and the reality of death. My life is a, a hand breadth. It was four fingers wide. This is my life. This is all that it is. Life is a breath, something that we see in Psalm 90 as well. What is it about breaths? Breaths are short, right? It happened like that. We're constantly breathing. Breaths are short. Breaths are elusive. Uh, we're starting to get cold outside. Got cold a little bit too early this year. Starting to get cold. So in the mornings and evenings, sometimes now we're seeing our breath. Breath is elusive. If you, you breathe out and you see it and you can't grasp it, right? It's there and then it's gone. A breath is short. A breath is elusive. And a breath is repetitive. It seems like they all sort of run together. And that's what life is. Since life is short, elusive, and hopelessly repetitive, where can purpose be found? Well, it can't be found here below. Ultimate purpose can't be found here below because there's no guarantees to what we find here below. Even those who are uh, rich and wicked, they cannot guarantee that they will enjoy their wealth. It's all vanity. It's all vain. Unless there is a connectedness to this ultimate, to these ultimate things of purpose. And that's where we find in in verse 7. Verse 7, which uh, operates as a bit of a, 
It's kind of the center of the psalm, the turning point of the psalm. And it's simply this, and this is the challenge for us. Make God your hope. Where is your hope? What is that one thing or one being or person to whom you give the absolute highest degree of love and devotion and affection? If it's anything other than the triune God of Scripture, you are missing the mark. Make God your hope. The challenges of this world are like a fog. They challenge all of the the foundational convictions that you are to hold when you go to Scripture and you say, okay, here is truth. Here is what I am to live for. The trials of this world are like a fog. And verse 7 is where the psalmist, where David ascends to the top of the mountain above the fog. And he can look and all of a sudden he sees clearly. He was distressed at the flourishing of the wicked. He was distressed at the suffering of the righteous. And then he comes up to the top and he says, where is hope found? What do I look for? What am I ultimately trying to do here? He says, my hope is in the Lord. And just like that, he sees things clearly. Perspective and purpose is found right there in verse 7. What do I look for? My hope is in the Lord. Ultimately, I need to make sure that I'm answering life's deepest questions in and through my covenant God. The one who sits enthroned and who reigns. For the post-resurrection Christian, of course, this is finding meaning and purpose through the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and through his Son who has ascended on high, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who bestows gifts upon his people so that we may serve one another, knowing and trusting in that reigning rule of Jesus Christ. I wait for the Lord, Psalm 130. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Desperation. Any of you who have uh, ever worked all night jobs and you know three o'clock, four o'clock, the desperation of waiting for that sun to rise and for the end of your nighttime shift. More than watchmen for the morning, I wait for the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? And here's where you have to see the turn of the psalm. Verse 7, he ascends the mountain. He sees clearly. He's no longer distressed at the flourishing of the wicked. He's no longer distressed at the suffering of the righteous. All of a sudden, his main concern has completely changed. The main concern that he has is being reconciled to this God who is his hope. If my hope is found in God alone, what I need to worry about is my sin and I need to, be wor- need to worry about being cleansed of my sin so that I can be rightly in fellowship with this God who is my hope. So that's the fourth thing. Make God your hope and then this, be reconciled to this God. Be reconciled to this God. Verse 8, save me from all my transgressions. Seek forgiveness. The number one need, if God is your hope, is for your sins to be forgiven. It makes other problems sink into the background. So seek forgiveness. 
Do not make me the scorn of fools. There, there you see that uh, probably what's going on there is that if we claim to have God as our hope, but we're being caught up in, in worrying primarily about the flourishing of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, uh, even a fool is going to be able to look at that and say, you're not living according to your foundational beliefs. If God is your hope, if you have a God who dwells in the heavens, whether or not they believe in this God or not, but if that is your hope, then you should be worried primarily about him and the life that he gives. So be reconciled to this God. And of course, that is the reconciliation that we have in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Uh, You have been justified by faith and therefore you have peace with God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God made him who who knew no sin to become sin for us on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Live in the joy. So, so being reconciled to God, seeking forgiveness, and then this. Live in the joy of forgiveness. I had someone say to me uh, this week, you know, it's amazing. I, I uh, evaluate or I examine men who are seeking ordination in, uh, in the presbytery where I serve. And it's amazing. You've got these young men fresh out of seminary. And uh, they all have so much knowledge. It kind of remi- reminds me of when I was sort of coming out of seminary. I felt like I'd just talk for days and days and days. And sometimes you get some pretty good stuff from these guys. You know, I'm the one who's supposed to know everything. Sometimes I'm like, wow, he really knows a lot of stuff. And he said, uh, commenting on church history, he said, one of the great things of the Reformation is that the Reformation brought a deep sense that God's people are sinners under the cross. This we come together primarily to be reminded that we are forgiven of our sin. And that brings comfort. And that brings joy. The joy of eternal life. You see, the, the, the comfort as we think about being reconciled, the comfort even as we think about the end of life and the judgment that awaits us, it brings us to, to a place like Romans 8. Right? Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, what he glorified. God does not, that great chain, that golden chain of redemption cannot be broken. To be justified is to be as good as glorified. And if you are holding faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him in the gospel, then you can be confident that that is a reality that has been known in your life and in your heart. The golden chain of redemption, he does not break. Not only that, but an amazing comfort. The one who will judge us is the one who died for us. What an amazing comfort that is. The one who will judge us is the one who died for us. 
The one who will judge us is the one who always lives to intercede for us, for the good of his church, the one who constantly is praying to the Father to give us exactly what we need, the one whose work constantly is an advocate for us next to the Father. What a glorious comfort that is. As we look forward to this reality of life being over and seeing the transience of life And just a few breaths away, we will stand before our God on the day of judgment. This is the comfort that we have, that he will come, that he will defeat all his and our enemies. And so the call upon us, brothers and sisters, is to live life backwards, to look forward to what God guarantees will happen And to live life backwards, to look to the judgment and always know that it is coming. How you view the end of the world, the end of all things, affects how you live today. It affects you in piety and holiness. The end of the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there will be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security. Where is your hope? It's in Christ. It's in God. Trust in him. Have that trust be the same. Be consistent each and every day of your life. And to be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. It's not a call to trust in your own works or your own righteousness. It's a call to always be looking to the Savior and rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins that you have through his name. 1 John chapter 2, now little children abide in him doesn't say produce your own good works. Now, of course, good works and abiding in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will come. Those things will come. But it says abide in him. Abide in Jesus. Remain in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So you live life backwards and it affects you in piety and holiness. You live life backwards. It gives you confidence to stand in Christ. One day you will stand before your God. One day the whole world will stand before our God and kings won't have their crowns anymore and congressmen won't have their titles anymore. It gives you confidence to stand in Christ. Mark chapter 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Be proud of your Savior. Love him. Be devoted to him. Not only confidence to stand in Christ, but also eagerness. Are you filled with an eagerness to see and meet your Savior and your God? Hebrews 9 So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for your Savior? Psalm 39 is a bit of a psalm of an old saint, someone who has grown old and gained this perspective. I think the challenge for us, uh, no matter what our age is, 
is that because of what God tells to us in Scripture, we can live with the wisdom of an old and aged saint. Because we know what is coming. And because we know what is coming, we know what God calls us to, we know that how that's to affect our lives, uh, we can be filled with a, a desire and a knowledge that we would know that all of those things that we may spend our time doing, our time on earth, if it's not the right thing, you will regret it later, just like we read in Proverbs chapter 5. The perspective of an old saint would also understand this world is not your home. What does it say here at the end? I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. This world is not your home. I'll close by reading just this prayer that seems in many ways rooted in Psalm 91. Lord, life is going by so fast. It frightens me unless I remember your eternity. We are as rootless as tumbleweeds and will be blown about all our lives unless you are our dwelling place. In you we are home. What I have in you I can never lose and will have forever. I praise you for this unfathomable comfort. When you are distressed at the futility of life, look to the everlasting God and trust in the redemption that he gives to you in his son. For the one who will judge us is the one who died for us. Let's pray. So we thank you, God, our Father, and we praise you, Jesus Christ, our King. And we ask that in your grace you would pour out your spirit uh, to bring these truths home to us that we might serve you and love you more. And always await that day with great anticipation. In Christ's name, amen.